Well, good morning. Everybody awake? Um, I hate spring forward. Um, there's always talk about changing it, and then it doesn't happen. So uh, uh, the good news is, is that as we uh, travel to South Carolina uh, after the services this morning um, to be there for our daughters, uh, Bertha for. Uh, first child, um, we'll get an extra hour of light in which to drive. So that's that's a nice thing anyway. Well, we're so glad that you're here with us uh, this morning. Thanks for tuning in. If you're watching online, uh, today we conclude our series in the book of Daniel. It's been an incredible journey uh, through these uh, first uh, six plus chapters of the book. I would encourage you to continue to read through the rest of Daniel uh, now that things are kind of fresh in your mind. I think uh, what we did last week, what we're going to do today, will help you uh, unpack uh, the rest of, of the book in a way that perhaps uh, will be most meaningful to you. And, um, and so, and if, and if you've been a part of a life group, you know the discussions have been really rich. Um, there were some insights, of course, that uh, were shared uh, with last week's sermon uh, that you would only get if you were in a life group, some tips for interpreting uh, apocalyptic literature. And so there are many reasons why you ought to consider to be involved in a life group if you're not already. Uh, last week, uh, we began chapter 7, and I titled the message, The Rise of the Beasts. Uh, today, I'm kind of continuing with that motif, um, thinking rather than beasts, using uh, the term monsters. And uh, I don't know about you, but I love uh, classic monster movies. I love uh, movies like Frankenstein, uh, The Wolfman, and um, Dracula, uh, amongst others. Any sci-fi fans here? Any monster fans? Not really? I'm the only one? Okay. Well, then this question's going to go over like a lead balloon. <laughs> In 1986, there was a movie that came out that had this memorable line in it. So I want to see if anybody knows the name of the movie. And uh, for extra credit, if you can tell me, you know, who it is that actually said it. But here's the line. It came out in 1986 in a movie, scary movie. We better get back because it'll be dark soon. And they mostly come out at night. Mostly. Okay. Well, aliens. Yes. Good job. Do you remember who said it? But the little girl, her name was Newt. Yeah, and uh, that, I tell you, a Alien, which was the first movie, and then Aliens, which was Alien 2, I mean, scary, scary movies, and, uh, but the little girl was right, you know, monsters usually come out at night, they usually come out in our dreams as we lie in our beds at night. Fortunately, they're just figments of our imagination. You know, we, we typically will wake up and go, whew, that was a dream. Good. <laughs> well, not so for Daniel. See, in Daniel's dreams, his monsters were real. And they were terrifying. But 
What we're gonna see this morning is despite how frightening they were, despite how powerful they were, they are no match for the ancient of days and the son of man. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. And I thank you for your word to us and, uh, Lord, the encouragement that it brings to us. And, Lord, I realize that uh, with as many people that are here and watching online that no doubt uh, some of us are going through some very difficult and trying uh, circumstances. Um, Some of us may be encountering um, opposition and oppression and even persecution for our faith. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, for those who are experiencing this, for those of us who have yet to experience it, Lord, I pray that we would take great comfort in the words that we are going to look at here this morning. Holy Spirit, be our teacher and our God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today is really like part two of last week. I went into last week thinking I was going to actually finish the entire chapter. I don't know what I was thinking about. We only got through eight verses. And the big idea then is the same big idea today. And that is, in the end, God wins. And so do we. Last week, as we began taking a look at uh, chapter 7, we we started to see the vision that God had given Daniel, and I uh, introduced us to apocalyptic literature and some of the dangers that we face in approaching it. Now, in Daniel, um, uh, the, the second half... It's, it's, it is apocalyptic. It's, it's vision-oriented. The first six chapters were biographical. It was narrative. But there is overlap between chapters 2, chapter 7, chapter 8, and even those that, that follow. Um, they, they, there, there's, there's a parallelism, if you would. And we talked about that a little bit last week. And I put this chart up And if we can get it up, there we go. Oops, went ahead. Um, You can kind of see that parallelism. You got chapter two. This uh, is in reference to the vision of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had. Remember, he was the head of gold. Um, Here in chapter seven, the lion corresponds to that. The bear here, leopard, and then the nondescriptive beast that is so different that Daniel couldn't liken it to any other creature. And if you were to go on to chapter 8, what you'll see is that the ram corresponds to the bear and the he-goat to the leopard. And here are the kingdoms here in which they represent. So basically, chapter 7 gives you the big picture and chapter 8 and uh, 9 and following uh, give you parts of the whole. So that's why I I said that after our time in Daniel chapter 7, hopefully you'll have at least a foundation in which to understand the rest of the book. Now, verse 9, well, even before we get to verse 9, last week we kind of ended with Daniel's vision. We're going to continue with his vision today, but then we're also going to move into the interpretation of his vision. And uh, this morning, we're going to dive deeper into Daniel's vision, but make no mistake about it, this is kind of like a bird's eye view. Uh, We could have spent 
weeks and weeks just in this chapter. Uh, there is so much here, so much to unpack. And uh, we come now to verse 9. And verse 9 gives us our first scene change. Daniel is no longer looking at the four beasts that have uh, arisen out of the sea. Rather, his eyes are now gazing upwards towards a heavenly courtroom. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up there. And starting in verse 9, I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. As I looked, thrones were placed. This is Daniel speaking. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. Now, immediately we're told that um, there were thrones, plural, that were put in place. So there are multiple thrones that are uh, here that have been put in place, and um, for the sake of time, I'm, I'm not going to to discuss what the significance of all of this is. Know that there is some significance, and it's tied directly to us, to the saints. But we see that the Ancient of Days comes and takes his seat on his throne. And Daniel is the only biblical author who refers to God the Father as the Ancient of Days. It is a, a reference to his eternality. Um, he's not saying that God is an old man, that he's, you know, a senile, but rather he has always existed. He always will exist. He has no beginning or no end. He is the Ancient of Days. And being seated on the throne reminds us that God is sovereign over his creation. He is sovereign over the nations, and he alone has ultimate power and authority. His clothing was white as snow. His hair was like pure wool. And this speaks of his purity. It speaks of his holiness, there is no spot, no blemish, no uh, impurity or deficiency in God. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. He is altogether holy, altogether righteous. And then it says that his throne was fiery flames, that his, his throne was ablaze with fire, yet it wasn't consumed. What does that remind you of? You know, the, the burning bush. How the bush was consumed with fire, but yet it, uh, I mean, was uh, ablaze with fire, but it was not consumed. And this too expresses his purity and his holiness, but it also expresses his righteous judgment. And notice it says that it's wheels it's, it's, I don't know too many thrones with wheels, but its wheels were burning fire. I don't know what picture comes to your mind. I, I kind of have a picture of Professor Xavier's wheelchair, except with burning wheels. You know, 
And the more I started thinking about it, you know, what are wheels for? Um, they're for mobility, uh, for being able to get from one place to another. A throne with wheels seems to indicate something like, have judgment, we'll travel. You know, God, there is no limit to God's judgment. Um, there, there, his scope of his judgment, um, there is no, no end to it. There's no ju- uh, limit to the judgment of the, of the wicked. God is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He sees all. He knows all. And nothing is hidden from his sight and from his righteous burning judgment. And then as if that's not enough, it says that a stream of fire came out from before him. And the picture here reinforces the idea of God's judgment. It flows out from him and from his throne. Uh, The psalmist writes in Psalm 97 verse 3 that fire goes before him and burns up all of his adversaries all around. And then the phrase uh, a thousand thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand are most, most likely just references to the innumerable angelic beings that surround the throne in the ancient of days. It, it speaks to his majesty and the magnitude of what is going on in the heavenly realms. The vision is reminiscent of what we read about in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5, we read, then, this is John writing, he says, then as I look and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. So now court is in session. And the books are open. Verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now, Daniel introduced us to, or rather I should say, I introduced us to uh, the vision of the little horn last week, but now Daniel's attention reverts to him. So remember, he, he initially saw the beast arising out of the sea, his gaze then goes heavenward, and now his attention goes back to the little horn. And you have to ask why, after seeing the, the majestic unfolding of the ancient of days coming forth, the angels around, why would he, would his attention be reverted back to that of the little horn? Well, it's real simple. He's got a big mouth. He's made a lot of noise. Daniel said, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. This little horn was boasting or bragging about its greatness, even, even, as if, even though God is sitting on his throne and about ready to judge him. And that's exactly what happens. Suddenly and without warning, he's taken out. 
The beast was killed and its body destroyed and burned. Now, this is where it gets a little complicated because biblical scholars are not in agreement on who this little horn is. But more on that in just a little bit. Scholars are equally unclear as to who the beasts and the beasts are in these two verses. And I, and I thought, how will I communicate this um, to you? The, the, and I just thought, I don't know if I could do a good job. So I'm just going to share with you something that I read uh, in the English Standard Version expository commentary. Hopefully, this will help you. Um, in it, we read that the rest of the beasts... Oops. There we go. If you will go to that slide, please. The rest of the beasts of verse 12 may be a reference to the ten horns. Since in verse 11, it appears a horn can also be considered a beast. I, I, I stress it appears. If this is true... Then God judged both the little horn, the beast of verse 11, and the other ten horns, the rest of the beasts, in verse 12. It is, however, plausible that in light of the opening verses of chapter 7, the rest of the beasts are the three that rose from the sea in verses 4 through 6, and the beast killed in verse 11 is the fourth beast. Do you follow that? Um, if, you were, if, if Daniel is being consistent with his terminology, the latter would be true. So this is, this is again, one of the dangers of when we come to apocalyptic literature. Uh, at first blush, we, you know, we think, oh, it's, it's the little horn that was killed. It may have been the beast. And if the beast was killed, of course, the little horn would also have been dealt with. Now, the rest of the beasts, whether they are the beasts mentioned in verses 2 through 8 or the horns of verse 7, they will be stripped of their power and authority. That much is certain. Their lives will be prolonged for a season and a time, meaning that their reprieve is going to be temporary. There will be a temporary reprieve. And for a time, the kingdoms of Babylon and Medo-Persia and uh, Greece um, will, will continue on, but in a very diminished form and um, as a subject to the kingdoms which uh, conquered them. Now, all of this can be confusing, so let me simply say this. Don't miss the forest for the trees, okay? Don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't miss the main point here. As frightening as these beasts were or are, and as terrifying as this little horn was or is, they will face certain judgment. Certain judgment. Whoever opposes the Ancient of Days will eventually be destroyed. Do you see now why this would have comforted the exiles of Daniel's day? 
in light of what they experienced to know that there is going to be an end to suffering, an end to persecution, an end to oppression. Now, in verses 13 through 14, we see another scene change. So let's look at it. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. See, there came one like a son of man. Meaning, he looked like a man. And yet he was more than a man. But he looked like a man. The son of man in Daniel's vision is a messianic character. He was a messianic figure. And it also happened to be Jesus' favorite title for himself in his earthly ministry. More than anything else, he would refer to himself as the son of man. And the Jews who heard him refer, him, refer himself to being the son of man would have made the connection to Daniel chapter 7. They would have understood that Jesus was equating himself as the long-awaited Messiah. And notice that he came with the clouds of heaven. I mean, think about it. A man coming with the clouds of heaven. This is no ordinary man. This is, this is the son of God and the son of man. He was both fully God and fully man. And he came to the ancient of days. He didn't come from the ancient of days, although he did come from the ancient of days when he came to earth in his first advent. But that's not the picture that we see here. Nor is this the picture of his second advent or his second coming. I believe that what we're looking at here is a description of what happened after Jesus' ascension recorded for us in Acts chapter 1. That Jesus ascended to his father in the clouds. And then, of course, what did the angels say? Hey, why do you guys keep looking up in the clouds? He's going to come back the very same way he left. He's going to come back with the clouds of heaven. So then, verse 14, then, is a description of the coronation of the Son of Man, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity. Having completed his redemptive work on the cross, he returned to the Father, where he receives dominion and glory and an everlasting kingdom. And he was given the nations as an inheritance. And that all people everywhere should serve him. That's what I think is going on here. So that's Daniel's vision. Let's now look at the interpretation of Daniel's vision starting in verse 15. 
As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Daniel was greatly troubled, frightened even. He didn't understand the vision. So he turned to one of the angelic beings who were there and asked for clarification. He asked for help here. He asked him to to tell him what this dream meant, what this vision all meant. And the angel tells him that for The four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth or the sea and that these kings represent four kingdoms. We we talked about that last week. We discussed that last week. These kings represent four kingdoms. Now, their reign and their power, however, is limited. It's temporary, How do we know that? Because the next part of it says, for the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Now, be careful. It's it's hard. But be careful. Don't read into um, the word saints with a Christianized understanding. Daniel does not have in mind Christians as he writes this. Uh, The exiles would have understood this to mean those faithful Jews who would suffer under these kingdoms. That would have been their understanding. And they would have suffered until the establishment of an eternal messianic kingdom. Similarly, we as Christians understand that we too will suffer under evil empires and regimes and the forces of wickedness in heavenly places until Jesus' second coming, until he returns to take us home. But make no mistake about it, in the end, God wins. And so do we. Verse 19. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than all its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom." 
Now, Daniel wants to know more about the fourth beast and this little horn that springs up from it. And notice that he includes some additional information here about the beast that he did not disclose in his vision initially. It has claws of bronze. Now, this ought to to remind us that um, when we approach apocalyptic literature, we need to remember we only know that which... um, the, the, the individual who's having the vision, we only know that which he discloses to us. So for one reason or another, it wasn't included in the original um, um, uh, vision that Daniel gives us in verses 2 through 8. For, for one reason or another, he omits the, this detail. But when details are omitted, it impacts our understanding. So again, we need to have a degree of humility as we approach this type of literature. And I would uh, add to that, don't worry about what the clause may or may not represent. It is sufficient to know that clause can rip you apart. All right? Now back in verse 8, we read, um, and I hope you have your Bibles to look at it, but it says, I considered the horns... And behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which of the three first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. In verses 20 and 21, we learned that this little horn was greater than all the other horns. In fact, three of them fell before him. Now, the numbers 10 and 3 might not be literal. They might be uh, figurative. It it might signify completeness. The number 10, that is, signify completeness. uh, completeness. The number 3 could simply signify some. But either way, 3 would still be some of 10. So we learn that this little horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them for a time. That is, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Verse 23. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise. And another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. This is where it gets really good, right? That's what some might say. Um, Most of this is not new, however, uh, but verse 25 does provide us some new information, some information that um, uh, we need to know. Uh, 
And what we learn about this little horn from the first 25 verses here is, first of all, he, it represents a person. I think that's pretty clear. He has the eyes of a man. He has a mouth that is arrogant and boastful. He arose after the other ten horns existed. And we know the ten horns were kings. And then he coexists with them for a time. And he himself is a king or a ruler. And he overpowers three of the other ten kings or horns. In verse 25, we see he utters blasphemies. He shall speak words against the Most High. In verse 21 and verse 25, we learn that he persecutes the saints of God. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. This implies a a long, drawn-out period of suffering and persecution. And then we learn that he sets himself up as as a godlike figure in that he attempts to change the times and the law. Well, what does that mean? Well, the Christian Standard Version says that he will intend to change religious festivals and laws. The New Living Translation says he will try to change their sacred festivals and laws. In short, what he is trying to do is he's trying to govern who and how the people of God will worship. He's assuming a godlike prerogative here. We read in in Daniel chapter 2, if you go back to verse 20, it says, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. That's God's prerogative. But this little horn is arrogant, and he takes it upon himself to do this. Many see this little horn as the Antichrist spoken of in the end times. Other interpreters describe uh, or look at this passage and and they feel like it, it is a description of any one of a number of historical figures, among them uh, Antiochus uh, Epiphanes who was a Hellenistic ruler of Syria and an ally of Rome, who outlawed Judaism, sacrificed a pig on the altar of God in Jerusalem, and tried to make the Jews worship Zeus. He oppressed God's chosen people in, in ways that were unrivaled. And he's the one that prompted the Maccabean revolt back in 166 and to 160 BC. Other scholars believe he may have been Nero or Vespasian or Domitian. Some believe he was Hitler. There's, there's no end to the hypotheses here. So I'm going to go out on a limb a little bit here with you and tell you what I think. And it's just what I think. As I look at this passage, because the horn is alive just prior to its judgment, 
brought about by the ancient of days and the time in which the saints possess the kingdom, I am inclined to think that it's referencing the Antichrist spoken of in the New Testament. It's also possible that Daniel's vision of the little horn might have multiple fulfillments, allowing for historical figures to fit the bill as well as the Antichrist of the end times. We don't know with certainty who he was or is. I tend to think he's the man of lawlessness. But there is no question about what happens to him. And that's the point. He is killed and his body is thrown into the fire. I like what Sinclair Ferguson had to say about this. Uh, I don't have it up on the screen, so uh, listen attentively if you would. It says, it should not surprise us that there will be continual expressions of the characteristics of the little horn that will reach their apex in the appearances of the little horn in the last days as described in Daniel's conclusion. Nevertheless, it is not surprising that many dictators and empire builders have been identified with the little horn and have shared some of its worst features. We have been told that the Antichrist will come in the final days, but that does not preclude our recognizing that many Antichrists have already strutted across the pages of history. And that echoes with the Apostle John said in his epistle. And so we read that they, that is the saints, shall be given into his hand for a time times and half a time. Now this is another reference to the persecution of the saints, of God's people. A time, times, and half a time is the subject of much debate. And it's unclear if this should be taken literally or figuratively. Some people claim that time equals a year. I'm not sure where they get that from because the word that's translated time means an indefinite period of time. But even if time means a year, how do you get three and a half years out of a time times and half a time? Why assume that times is two years? It's the same word, only in the plural form. Why not three years, five years, or more? I don't know. What is clear is that there is a divinely appointed end to his oppression. Look at verse 26. <clears throat> but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. 
Now, this is the second time the angel tells Daniel that judgment is coming and that the saints will be given an eternal kingdom. The angel is clearly more interested in God and in his judgment and in the saints um, receiving the kingdom than he is in um, interpreting uh, the ten horns and trying to figure out who the little horn is. And we should be too. Remember the big idea. In the end, God wins. And so do we. Let's look at the very last verse. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. I really, really appreciate the fact that Daniel included verse 28. Because it reveals to us that Daniel was not a super saint. He was human, like you and me. Even though he was assured by an angel. First of all, he had a vision, a God-given vision. And then it was interpreted by an angel. And he was assured by the angel that God will defeat all of his enemies and usher in his eternal kingdom. Even though all of that, he is still unnerved. He is still distraught. He is still frightened by what he sees. Why? I think it's because he understood the implication of it. Daniel knows that in the end, God wins. But he also knows, based on this, that the end is a long way off. And before he or any of the people of God will get to the end, there will be much suffering. Daniel and the rest of the exiles endured a great deal in captivity. They lost so much. And the hope was that they would return to their homeland, that, that God would establish his eternal kingdom sooner rather than later. Now, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Oh, they would return to their homeland. But God's eternal kingdom is a long way off. I think Daniel realizes he will not live to see it. He, I think he realizes that they're, the, the exiles and their children and perhaps their children's children would not live to see it, that they would continue to suffer before God's eternal kingdom comes and is given to the saints. It is a lot to take in and process. 
And I so appreciate Daniel, including verse 28, because it, it, it tells me that as godly as he was, as much faith as he had, as courageous as he was, he doesn't have all the answers. It doesn't all make sense to him. But he knows who sits on the throne. And he knows this is a certainty, whether he sees it in his lifetime or not. And we need to understand this. We need to understand that things may get a whole heck of a lot worse before they get better. We may not live to see God's kingdom come, but come it will. Alistair Begg in the last part of chapter seven of his book, Brave by Faith, said this. This life will not be easy. Because there is raging all around us a continual and irreconcilable war. And neutrality is not an option. Life may get harder. Society may get unfriendlier. Faith in Christ may become still more unacceptable. And obedience to Christ still more costly. But the recurring theme of Daniel 7 is that the saints of God will receive the kingdom and possess it. Forever, forever, and ever. Jesus' reign. Jesus reigns and Jesus will return. We may not understand every part of the picture that Daniel paints in chapter 7, but stand back and see the broad sweep of it. God won. God wins. As I said earlier, Apocalyptic literature is not easy to understand, but the main point of, of chapter seven is clear. Four kingdoms will arise, one more terrifying than all the others, and that there will be a ruler or a king who will arise from it who will be more powerful than all the other rulers, and he will oppress God's people for a time. Then he will be defeated and destroyed. And the saints of God will receive the kingdom and possess it forever and ever. It is this truth that will enable us to stand firm when everyone around us bows down. It is this truth that will sustain us as we face persecution and injustice. We need not fear monsters real or imagined, because we know that in the end, God wins, and so do we. Jesus, the Son of Man, gave his life on the cross so that we could be made new. He came to rescue us from our sin and the domain of darkness, and then he ascended to the Father the ancient of days, and he received an eternal kingdom as his inheritance. And those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Christ are joint heirs with him. And we too will receive the kingdom. One day he will return and he will deal with evil. He will destroy it once and for all. But until that day, here's my challenge to you. Continue to trust in God. Live faithfully and courageously in the here and now. Let's all learn to live brave 
by faith. I want to close with Jesus' words from the Gospel of John, and it's simply this. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning and for your word, for the great encouragement that it is to us. And Lord, we do not want to be so fixated on the things that have yet to be that we lose sight of the here and the now and what you want us to be in it and what you want us to do now. Lord, as we look forward to your return, I pray that you would do a deep work in each of us that we might live faithful and godly lives, that we would live courageously, that, Lord, that we would trust you with every ounce of our being so that you might receive all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.